Extraordinary Districts, Special Edition, The Milford Eleven. Hi, this is Karen Chenoweth from the Education Trust. We believe that all children deserve a high-quality education. To mark the 65th anniversary of the Brown v. Board of Education ruling, we are bringing you this special edition. Ordinarily, we focus closely on the work of school districts, curriculum, instruction, data, leadership. But today we're stepping back and looking at a story that vividly illustrates that school districts are just one piece of a larger whole, the story of the Milford Eleven. I learned about the Milford Eleven when I was working on an episode that will be released this fall about Seaford in southern or lower Delaware. I realized that what happened in lower Delaware 65 years ago profoundly shaped today's debates about schools and integration and civil rights, the role of the courts and judges, and the most important debate of all, what kind of country we want to have. The whole state of Delaware is a, a kind of an ambivalent state as far as race relations are concerned. And anyone that joins forces with another race against his own race is a traitor to the white race. I've observed individuals on the bench as well as in my business, whether it's in the Congress or sitting as governors or as presidents, I've observed how difficult it is for them, for us, to approach decisions that we know are right, but we know will be viewed by the bulk of the public as wrong. I had put it out of my mind, put it out of my, my, my vocabulary for a long period of time. As much as possible, I will be bringing you the voices of those who were part of this story, even when they might be considered offensive. But we will also have the benefit of consulting with a historian. My name is Brett Gadsden. I'm Associate Professor of History at Northwestern University in, in Evanston, Illinois. Gadsden grew up in Delaware, but had never learned about the Milford Eleven or Delaware's role in the national conversation about integration until he went looking for a dissertation topic, which later became a book, Between North and South. It was serendipity, I think, that I discovered this, what I think is a really interesting um, history of a small state that had wide resonances um, nationally. So I'm guessing that, like me, you've never heard of the Milford Eleven before. Let's begin with something you've heard of, Brown versus Board of Education. That's the 1954 case in which the Supreme Court ruled that school segregation violated the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. There's been a lot of talk about the 14th Amendment lately, but the short story is that it was adopted after the Civil War to say that no state could deny any citizen equal protection of the laws. The 14th Amendment was written to cover all those who had been enslaved. It defines as citizens anyone born or naturalized in the United States. In terms of law, the 14th Amendment seemed to have settled the question of equality. Henceforth, there would be only one category of American. But white supremacists didn't let a little constitutional amendment stop them. Launching a campaign of murder and terror following Reconstruction, they simultaneously created a legal loophole to the 14th Amendment. That loophole was known as the doctrine of separate but equal. The idea was that as long as facilities were equal, 
states could legally require separate facilities for white and black people without running afoul of the 14th Amendment. Separate train cars, separate bathrooms, separate schools. And the Supreme Court endorsed this loophole in a case called Plessy v. Ferguson. By 1954, 17 states and the District of Columbia had laws on the books requiring segregated schools. In Delaware, segregation wasn't just a matter of statute. The state constitution required separate schools, not only for African-American students, but for what it called Moors and Indians. But activists and attorneys with the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP, saw an opening. They thought they might be able to exploit the equal part of separate but equal to undermine the whole premise. We first started off to make the schools equal on the theory, and this was Margold's theory, that if you made them so expensive they couldn't maintain them, then segregation would die of its own weight. That is Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall speaking in 1977. Marshall, of course, was appointed as the first African-American Supreme Court Justice by President Lyndon Johnson. But for decades before that, he had been head of the Legal Defense Fund of the NAACP. The Margold he referred to was Nate Margold, an attorney who helped formulate the NAACP's legal strategy, along with Marshall and Charles Hamilton Houston. The NAACP tackled universities first. In Delaware, that meant addressing the disparities between the all-white University of Delaware and the historically black Delaware State College, now university. And here I want to introduce Lewis L. Redding. Well, I was admitted to the bar uh, during the Depression, and I worked as a lawyer uh, throughout uh, the Depression. Lewis Redding was the first African-American attorney in Delaware, and for decades the only one. Born in Wilmington, he attended Brown University and Harvard Law School and returned home to practice law in 1929. He became the attorney who worked with the NAACP on Delaware cases. This is from an interview that he did in 1971. I had uh, some small reputation for uh, representing uh, what might, uh, I suppose, colloquially be called the disadvantage, the underdog, so forth. The thing to know about Delaware is that it is very small, but in many ways it reflects the full American experience. For example, it was a slave state, but by the Civil War, 90% of the African Americans who lived in the state were free. The 1,800 or so African Americans who remained in slavery lived in the southern or lower part of the state, and they remained enslaved until the 13th Amendment to the Constitution was ratified in 1865. The 13th Amendment was the one that banned slavery. By the way, it wasn't until 1901 that Delaware ratified the 13th Amendment. Here's Redding again. The whole state of Delaware is a, a kind of an ambivalent state as far as race relations are concerned. The um, Chesapeake and Delaware Canal which is um, probably um, some uh, 18 or 20 miles um, south of Wilmington, is considered the point at which Delaware very definitely begins looking southward. Above that, uh, it has generally been thought that as far as uh, relations between blacks and whites are concerned, uh, Delaware is uh, 
uh, somewhat more advanced than it is uh, below the canal. This is perhaps true, but the differences are not very great. There was certainly as much opposition above the canal uh, to according blacks equal access to places of public accommodation, identity of education in the public schools, and by that I mean, of course, uh, um, non-segregated education in the public schools. The historically black Delaware State College had been severely underfunded for decades. In 1949, it lost its accreditation. Students turned to Reading for help. Reading filed for an injunction against the University of Delaware, saying that since the state had not provided equal facilities, the University of Delaware must admit African-American students. The case went before a newly appointed judge. I was the first Catholic ever appointed to the state bench. Mm -hmm. And that's what you call short history, right? That is Judge Colin Seitz from an interview he did in 1996. The sound quality isn't great, so we won't play much of it. But he provided some insight to the times and the case. I, I never went to school with black, you know, mm -hmm. anywhere. So I wasn't in the forefront of my mind at all. Mm -hmm. So I went to high schools, all white, so the university, and the Virginia Law School, they're all white. So it wasn't one of those problems that I, I had occasion to think about a whole lot. Mm -hmm. So here he was, 36 years old. Seitz had experienced plenty of anti-Catholic prejudice, but he had never really thought about the experience of African Americans. He was now asked to make a rather momentous decision concerning segregation in 1950 in one of his first cases as a judge. Seitz went to see for himself what Delaware State College was like. The disparity at Delaware State was gross. All you needed to do was walk in. I remember thinking, is this the library? <laughs> wow. A lot of books piled on the floor. Seitz issued an injunction saying that the University of Delaware could no longer deny admission to African-American students. Mind you, his ruling did not officially question segregation. Seitz was holding Delaware to the standard established in Plessy v. Ferguson, the doctrine of separate but equal. Since the facilities were not equal, they could not be separate. This ruling could have been the beginning and the end of Seitz's judicial career because his appointment had not yet been confirmed by the Delaware legislature. The senator from the downstate came up, and he was a Democrat. He said, I want you to know, despite what people are saying, I didn't oppose you because you're a Catholic. I opposed you because of your racial views. Seitz was confirmed, but that wasn't the end of the story. You know, rather than give in, the legislature appropriated a lot more money for Delaware State College. They have a lot of very nice buildings now there. They thought that would keep the school going and not have any pressure to send them to a white university. Here's Thurgood Marshall again. We first started off to make the schools equal on the theory, and this was Margold's theory, that if you made them so expensive they couldn't maintain them, then segregation would die of its own weight. Well, eventually we found it wasn't working, so then we shifted to hitting it straight on. From then on, NAACP attorney Lewis Redding refused to take cases that sought equal facilities. When Sarah Beulah asked him to help her get a school bus to 
take her daughter to the black school miles from her home, Redding refused. He would only take the case if she sued to be able to send her daughter to the white school near her home. She agreed, and he filed suit. At the same time, African-American families in Claymont and elsewhere in Delaware were seeking to have their children admitted to the local high schools instead of having to send them to Wilmington. Redding agreed to represent them as well. Once again, Redding was before Colin Seitz in 1952 asking for an injunction. Working with him was Jack Greenberg from the New York office of the NAACP. They asked that the white schools stop refusing to admit African-American children. Once again, Seitz visited the schools in question. He didn't find the kind of vast disparities he had found between the University of Delaware and Delaware State, but he did find that they were unequal, and he ruled that the schools in Claymont and Hokessin must desegregate forthwith. Forthwith means right now, with no delay. Mind you, Seitz still hadn't ruled against the principle of segregation. He acknowledged that Plessy v. Ferguson was the law of the land. He was simply holding the state to the doctrine of separate but equal. In the course of the trial, Delaware's attorney general had defended the state's system of segregation and promised the state would bring the black schools up to the level of the white schools in terms of funding and staffing. I remember I put something in there. When you do that, then you can reapply. Mm. <laughs> Nobody in this world could expect them to bring the black schools up to the white school. That was a joke. The Delaware Supreme Court allowed Seitz's injunction to stand. At that point, Attorney General Young appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. He argued that Seitz should have given the state time to bring the black schools up to the level of the white schools. Young is a kind of interesting figure, right? Here's historian Gadsden. As the attorney general, Young represents the state in defending the state's practice of segregated schools that was written into the state constitution many, many, many decades earlier. So in that sense, he's kind of typical of attorneys general um, throughout the Jim Crow, Jim Crow states, right? Here's how Young wasn't typical. He was the first Jewish attorney general of Delaware. He, too, had experienced prejudice and had even changed his name from Yanowitz to make it easier for Americans to accept him. He's not, he wasn't cut from the same cloth as those white Southerners from states farther south in his kind of variantly racist defense of segregation. I think he attempted to kind of mount his defense of, state, of the state laws in kind of the ostensibly race-neutral ideals of states' rights. So three of the protagonists of this story were firsts in Delaware. Redding, the first African-American attorney, Seitz, the first Catholic judge, and Young, the first Jewish attorney general. The Supreme Court decided to hear the Delaware cases at the same time as other school segregation cases that were then before them. That included one case from Washington, D.C., one from South Carolina, and one from Kansas. Collectively, they were named after Linda Brown, a little girl in Topeka whose father wanted her to go to her neighborhood school. Only in Delaware had the NAACP won in state court. In his ruling... Seitz had said that he believed that the separate but equal doctrine should be rejected, but he wrote that its rejection must come from the Supreme Court. And it may have been that Seitz's judgment played a role in the Supreme Court ruling. 
At a memorial for Seitz after his death in 1998, William Coleman spoke. Coleman was the first African-American Secretary of Transportation under President Richard Nixon. Early in his career, Coleman had been a clerk for Supreme Court Justice Felix Frankfurter. Coleman said that after work one night in 1960, Frankfurter told him that Seitz had influenced his vote in the Brown case. He said, you had to realize that there were five decisions which had held that segregation was constitutional. And giants at the law, like Holmes, Brandeis, and Stone had voted that way. You had to realize that Chancellor Sykes was the first person as a jurist, not as an advocate, to put in writing why in 1952 that segregated schools were completely inconsistent with the American dream. These assets all combined in that young person Sykes, Frankfurter concluded, and demonstrated that history, including legal precedents of the Supreme Court, could be made to bow before the sheer stubbornness of a human conscience. In May of 1954, Frankfurter joined the rest of the Supreme Court in a unanimous ruling that the doctrine of separate but equal violated the 14th Amendment. It thus overturned five previous Supreme Court decisions, including Plessy v. Ferguson. The court ordered that students be admitted to public schools on a non-discriminatory basis with what it called all deliberate speed. It also promised another ruling to talk about implementation. That summer, Delaware's state school board issued a directive saying that local school boards should develop tentative plans to desegregate and submit them to the board. But the NAACP wasn't interested in tentative. It wasn't interested in deliberate speed. It wasn't interested in an implementation ruling. It wanted what sites had ordered, which was desegregation forthwith. And many African-American families throughout Delaware wanted desegregation forthwith as well, including a group of families in the southern Delaware town of Milford. But in the summer of 1954, August to be exact, there was rumblings that we were going to have an opportunity after we graduated from Benjamin Banneker School, that we would have an opportunity to go to, possibly go to an all-white school. That's Orlando J. Camp, who was 15 in 1954. We had graduated on June 16th from Benjamin Banneker School in Milford, Delaware. Now, believe it or not, back in 1954, there were only 11 students in the senior class. And the white school at that time had over 668 students. This is from an interview Orlando Camp did in 2012 about the book he wrote about his experience. By the way, if you go to our website, www.edtrust.org slash extraordinarydistricts, you can find links to all the resources we're using, as well as to Camp's book. The exciting thing for us was is that we had the first American black lawyer, Louis L. Redding. Mm -hmm. That was a slip of the tongue. Louis Redding was Delaware's first black lawyer. And Reverend Fisher saying, look, guys, in 1954, you're going to get an opportunity uh, in the summer of 1954 to go to an all-white school in September. And uh, we were kind of coached and counseled, and we were very excited about the opportunity to go. In fact, my mother gave me $150 to go 
to go to Strawbridges and buy new clothes for the new upcoming school year. $150 in 1954 represented a substantial financial sacrifice for Camp's family. Camp and his brother took the bus to Philadelphia and came home with a school wardrobe. In pictures from Camp's book, they looked sharp. Uh, we were told that this is going to be a monumental opportunity for us and make sure that we were on our best behavior, uh, respect the teachers. And we were 11 kids from Milford, Delaware. Now, we didn't stroll into the school. We weren't trying to uh, come in with an attitude. We were just happy to get an education from an all-white school because we knew one thing for sure, that getting an education from an all-white school was going to give us an opportunity. One of the things to keep in mind is that just a few years before, in 1950, Southern Delaware had gotten its own state-of-the-art high school for African-American students. Jason High School, 16 miles away from Milford, was the culmination of political and financial struggle on the part of the African-American community that can be traced at least as far back as the 1870s. But Camp said that he and the other students believed the white school would open even more opportunities for them. Having prepared the students and their families, Redding and Reverend Fisher met with the chair of the Milford School Board. They met in the living room of the school board president, and he said, this will blow the town apart. That's Walter Key. He goes by Ed, and he's the former Secretary of Education for Delaware. In the 1990s, he moved to the Milford School District and heard rumors about a problem that had occurred years before. Key later documented what happened in a master's thesis and an article that Orlando Camp later drew on for his book. Key says Lewis Redding and local minister Reverend Fisher convinced the school board members that the Supreme Court's decision and the 14th Amendment overrode Delaware's constitution and tradition. The board agreed to admit African-American 10th graders into Milford High School. They did nothing to prepare the community. They sent no letters. They held no meetings. When teachers reported to work, the superintendent told them, but that was the extent of the preparations. And Milford's school board failed to get prior approval from the state board. Meanwhile, Camp and the other students continued their summer. We had a relationship with the white community, the boys and girls of our age in 1954. We played with them during the summer of 54. We played bas basketball, football. We swam with them in the same uh, uh, Silver Lake. So we had a relationship with the white kids, so we didn't feel intimidated by them. In fact, we did not even know or in, uh, have an understanding what, we, what we're going to face in three or four weeks from right. now. On the first day of school, Orlando Camp and 10 other African-American 10th graders enrolled in Milford High School. So the teachers were very, they were courteous but not friendly. Okay. Right. And they just basically said, good morning, welcome to our school, turn to page 47. For about a week, things went pretty well. Students and teachers may have felt tentative about the new situation, but no one reported any real trouble. Academically, Camp said the students felt prepared except in one subject, Algebra 2. Now, I looked at that book, and I'm saying, you got to be kidding me. I mean, this is something I've never had before. So at the end of the first class, I went to the teacher. I said, you know, along with some other students, I said, well, you know, we really haven't had algebra yet. Well, she said very politely that you're going to have to get some uh, independent uh, counseling and teaching. Mm -hmm. That was my first shock to my system to realize that this is really going to be a challenge for us. As the students went home, 
the white kids begin to tell the parents, guess what, mom, I've got a colored kid in my class. And she said, the parents would say, well, what are you talking about? There's no colored kids going here. Well, yeah, it is. Mm -hmm. Today, we said some colored kids. So the phones began to ring. It's impossible to know what would have happened if Milford had been left to its own devices. Other school districts in Delaware, mostly north of the canal, integrated after little flurries of concern. But Milford was not allowed to absorb the changes on its own. Here's Ed Key. A leading businessman, not terribly well respected in the community, he was the, um, he had the tractor dealership and all the farm equipment dealership. So he was of the mind to be against integration, and a lot of his clientele, rural farm people or other people, um, didn't like it. And he had something to do with at least financing Brian Bowles to come over here. And Brian Bowles. Brian Bowles. Brian Bowles was a small contractor and petty crook, originally from Florida. He had served in World War II as a Marine and apparently was angry at President Harry Truman's decision to integrate the military in 1948. He called himself the president of a new organization, the National Association for the Advancement of White People. The idea was that white people were under siege and needed to assert their rights. This, this is new to the white people, that you got to stand up and shout to the rooftops to stick up for your rights. It's new. That's Bowles. Bowles flew into southern Delaware on a little plane and held a rally at a small airport just west of Milford. Now, this was before Twitter, this was before email, this was even before you could count on everyone having a phone. So to drum up interest for his rally, he borrowed a technique from World War II and flew over the farms dropping leaflets. Hundreds of people attended. He called on parents to keep their children home from school. The people out there have asked me to announce that they are in favor if any Negro walks into any school anywhere in Delaware Monday that they have a statewide walkout in the school to support them. Oh, C4 Delaware started keeping them home today. I think they should have a hand. By the way, the reason we can hear Bowles is because a local radio station recorded a series of rallies and meetings at which he spoke. As the days went on, white parents started gathering every morning on the school's steps. Fewer white students attended every day. Here's camp again. Some of us were intimidated uh, by the white parents, and it's very difficult to have an educational opportunity when people are calling you all kinds of names. It was very interesting. One of the things they did, they would break light bulbs so that would scare you on the street right. sidewalks so that would so you would get you would jump and flinch as if maybe a gunshot was going off but it was a light bulb for the most part so right. we did not in- experience any kind of physical hostilities except for the fact that the parents began to holler all kinds of names and then that tenants in the school began to drop one of the main targets of the crowds were white parents who continued to send their children to school Segregationists threatened those white parents when they dropped off their children, and they called homes warning of possible harm to white children who attended school. That We had a lot of the white community in support of the integration. They felt very strongly that all kids should have a quality education, and not just the white kids. And we had many parents uh, come to us and say, keep up the good fight. We're there for you. Right. And many others 
decided to, I'm not going to send my kid back to the school anymore. At this point, Attorney General Arthur Young played a new role. Long the defender of segregation, he now became the defender of integration. Here he is talking in an interview he did in 1978. When Brian came down again with kind of boycotts and I was going to burn the building down and that sort of thing, I was asked for an opinion then. And I said that I, my opinion was to the effect that the Supreme Court has spoken, and that's the law of the land, and that these children did not dis- disrupt either the curricular school, they didn't contaminate anybody, the walls didn't fall apart, and that they, they had a right to be there. Young ordered state troopers to accompany the African-American students to school. But as the crowds began to build, and every morning we'd be picked up by the state policeman who would, not friendly, he would just open the back door, not say a word, never say good morning. Right. And you get in the back of the police car and they take you to school and drop you off. And then we'd have to walk through this gauntlet of white spectators mm-hmm. and, and protesters. 14, 15, 15. 15 years yeah. old? Okay, I'm sorry. It got to the point where you could be sitting in a classroom looking out the window and there'd be people cussing you out yeah. uh, from, the, from the side of the school looking in the windows while you're sitting in class. From then on, I was accused that uh, the reason I ruled that way is because I was a Jew. And then they referred to the name of my family and the honor which, and I changed the name, and, and I had to meet that issue. And... You're all, I'm sure, familiar with your attorney general here. His name is H. Albert Yanovich, alias H. Albert Young. <laughs> You know, historically what happened to him, it just it, it kind of makes sense. I mean, it, it makes sense in, in terms of how, and if you think about how we understand white reactionary politics in general, the ways in which um, segregation has targeted African Americans, but also targeted whites who were perceived as aligning themselves with the interest of African Americans in civil rights. Attorney General Young took the National Association for the Advancement of White People to court, arguing that it should not have an organizational charter. He said it was contrary to public policy. He lost that case. But during the hearing, Young questioned a minister who worked with Bowles. A pseudo uh, minister who was never ordained, and he would carry the cross in the Bible and say that in the Bible it says that you can't mix the races. And when I took his deposition, I said, point out to me in the Bible where it says that. He says, it's in the Bible. I mean, that's, that's, it's like a child. When you ask a child, what's your reason? He says, because. And that's, that was the answer. All right. At a certain point, rumors started that one of the Milford 11 students, a boy, had asked a white girl to go to the movies. That incited the crowds even more. Now, my daughter is here beside this bench, and that's what I'm fighting for this afternoon. Historian Brett Gadsden is doubtful that that rumor had any truth to it. Right, it wasn't that, that these were kind of 11 randomly selected students. These were carefully selected students whose families were committed to sending them to, to the previously white schools. The idea that they would kind of go in there to purposely be troublemaking is kind of totally anathema to the NACP's larger strategy. By the way, Ed Key has a theory about why Bowles came to Delaware. I mean, he was a racist and a demagogue and a bad guy, but 
as much as anything, this was a money-making opportunity for him to exploit. Here's Orlando Camp. He had this rally in which he asked people to put whatever they could in these peach baskets. But believe it or not, they filled the peach basket with money, some up to $20 and $50. Now, back in 54, that was a significant right. amount of money. So he raised a lot of money. Despite many protestations that he was law-abiding and that the people he led were peaceful, Bowles's language and the language of other speakers at the rallies they held were filled with vague threats and jokes about violence. Well, you people have your rights to vote on that matter. All in favor, say aye. Aye! All opposed, say no. And run. The threats were taken seriously. Here's Young. And I came down and I, I was asked, did I, was I uh, in fear? Yes, I was in fear. Only about one thing. I didn't care if they killed me, but I was in fear that they might tar and feather me. That was the thing that I feared. Someone burned a cross on the superintendent's lawn. Someone drove Lewis Redding's car off the road on one of his trips to Milford. The Milford School Board closed schools for a couple of days to let things cool off and then reopened them. I think that we should show the, not just the state, the whole United States that has their eye upon you, that we like to do things fair and in the American way. I am in favor, but it's up to you, I am in favor of all children returning to school tomorrow morning. Now, if you do not wish that, that is up for you to decide. But if they put those Negroes back in school, then I'm in favor of all the children coming out again. Bowles was right about one thing. The country did have its eye on Milford. Every major newspaper and magazine sent reporters to the small town. The state school board criticized the local Milford school board, saying that it should have filed its integration plan earlier. It also said Milford should have waited for the Supreme Court's implementation ruling. They said this even though Attorney General Young had said Milford School Board could not legally have refused to admit the 11 students. The governor piled on with his criticism and refused to send the National Guard. Members of the Milford School Board felt undermined, and at a public meeting, the board's lawyer announced their resignations. I am instructed by the individual members of the board to say to the State Board of Education that the operation of the Milford School is their problem and the individual members do hereby resign, effective immediately. Here's Orlando Camp again, summing up what happened next. Uh, they felt that this is a little bit too much and we're going to have to uh, suspend the integration of, of 1954 and those 11 black students. So we ended up uh, going to an all-black high school. Officially, the state school board disenrolled Orlando Camp and the rest of the Milford 11 and re-enrolled them at Jason High School. It said it would wait for the Supreme Court's implementation ruling before desegregating the schools. And that was the end of desegregation for many years, not just in Milford, but in all of Lower Delaware. Bryant Bowles had won. Here's historian Gadsden. I don't think that it's good history to explain Milford entirely through the lens of Bryant Bowles. 
he became, in a sense, then a catalyst through which all of this energy could receive, you know, could be organized and mobilized and pointed in a particular direction um, such that local whites could effectively challenge the local school board, challenge the state board of education in a manner that had the effect of, you know, thwarting change and stopping change and stopping the desegregation of schools in those communities. Eisenhower, who had ignored what happened in Milford, finally confronted segregationist mobs three years later. He sent in troops from the 101st Airborne Division of the U.S. Army to protect the nine students who integrated Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas, in 1957. But even that didn't end massive resistance to desegregation. Politicians, government agencies, and even courts responded by saying that white communities needed time to get used to the idea of desegregation to avoid what they called disorder. Sometimes they explicitly mentioned what had happened in Milford as an example of what they needed to avoid. These whites were essentially making the argument that white people will not be able to contain themselves. There will be this violence, white violence against blacks. So we have to deny or we have to delay reform because white people are, are kind of constitutionally un, unprepared. It wasn't until President Lyndon Johnson's Department of Health, Education, and Welfare threatened to withhold funding in 1967 that schools in Lower Delaware desegregated, 13 years after the Brown decision. By this point, however, northern Delaware was changing. Wilmington was becoming a mostly black city, and its suburbs had become mostly white, following the pattern of a lot of metropolitan areas. Schools in the Wilmington area were no longer segregated because of Delaware's constitution, but because of housing patterns, which had their roots in less visible real estate covenants and discriminatory mortgage lending. In the early 1970s, the federal government confronted that history and ordered that students should be bused across jurisdictional lines in order to integrate. And here's where the brand-new Senator Joe Biden, who was first elected in 1973, makes an appearance. Biden attends this uh, community meeting in which there is kind of loud and vociferous opposition that the whites who attend these meetings are uh, unabashedly opposed to, to these busing programs. There was more than an undercurrent of violence at that meeting, and memories of the success of such threats in Milford 20 years before were very much present. But anti-integrationists had a new argument to deploy. That whites across the board accepted the court's logic that segregation was unconstitutional and, and somehow kind of morally kind of problematic, at odds with the American creed, if you will. But at the same time, they kind of resurrected and invented this entirely new logic. These whites began to imagine an, a kind of usurp an usurpation of their own white rights to educational quality, i.e. have these black kids who come into our schools and suddenly the quality of our schools goes down and our rights, whites' rights to quality education is undermined. And Biden carries their opposition back to the Senate and votes in support of a number of measures, of, of federal measures that, in terms of federal legislation, that have the effect of 
kind of undermining the Department of Health and Edu Education and Welfare's ability to mandate these busing programs to um, desegregate schools. Many years later, Joe Biden mentioned the busing controversy of the early 1970s at the same memorial service for Collins Sites that William Coleman had spoken at. It was 1999, a decade before he became vice president. Biden was still the senator from Delaware, and he praised Seitz's decisions in the 1950s as courageous, speaking directly to Seitz's son. If everybody thinks it was tough, or easy, I should say, making the decision that he made in the 50s, I want to remind you the little bit of turmoil that occurred here when we had a thing called busing, which pales, pales by comparison. We all herald them now. We all stand here and say they're obviously the right thing to do. But hardly anybody in Claymont, Delaware, where I'm from, or at St. Lena's, the school I went to, thought your dad did the right thing then. Some of the very people sitting in this courtroom did not have the courage to stand up when he made the decision and say, that is the correct decision. I know that to be true. Count me in with him. How many times when he went to the grocery store did people say, Judge, great decision. Great decision. You are one of my heroes. What he did back in the 50s was astounding. To our great shame, we're a very proud state. And I'm exceedingly proud of representing the state for the last 26 years as a United States Senator. But we had a shameful past as related to race, a shameful past. Joe Biden's actions in the early 1970s helped delay the Wilmington busing program. But in the late 1970s, the courts ordered it to go forward, and Gadsden was part of that integration effort. I was in elementary school in 1978, the first year that the courts had mandated the city suburb busing system um, program in Wilmington and the surrounding metropolitan area. Now, my family lived in the suburbs. We were African-American in a predominantly white community, and so I was a black student on a bus of mostly white kids that was, and we were all transported into the city. I went to the George Gray School at that time as part of this desegregation program. Um, it was completely natural to me. I mean, it was kind of an adventure. You get on the bus, go downtown to this new school, but I was surrounded, you know, in this really kind of interesting and lovely integrated classroom setting. For the first time in my life, I had a black teacher. I was in classrooms with a lot of black, other black students, with many of with whom I made um, friendships. And but it wasn't a matter of discussion in my household, you know, that this that we were part of this kind of historic um, education reform program. It was just what we did. And then it was only when I kind of came back and continued my research with, on school desegregation in Delaware that I remembered that, I, that it struck me that I, as a child, had been kind of part of this kind of historic reform program. Approaching the end of the 20th century, Delaware was notable for having among the most integrated schools in America, according to the Civil Rights Project, which is based at the University of California, Los Angeles. The Civil Rights Project said that few black students were in what it considered to be segregated schools. But in a series of court rulings in the 1990s, 
the courts said that integration efforts had been so successful that school districts no longer needed to be under orders to integrate. By 2010, roughly 64% of black students in Delaware were enrolled in what the Civil Rights Project called predominantly minority schools, and nearly 20% attended intensely segregated schools. The Civil Rights Project said that Delaware had been a leader in school integration, but it is slipping back fast. You know, I think what struck me was how broad-based white opposition to school desegregation has always been in Delaware and across the country. And but for court mandates demanding that public officials actively desegregate schools, the default position in American political development in public education is segregation. It is not desegregation. One of the many things that struck me in the story of the Milford 11 is that for years we have heard the terms law and order, outside agitators, and neighborhood schools used as weapons against integration. But in Milford, Delaware, mobs who were contemptuous of law and order and whipped up by an outside agitator used threats of violence to deny children the opportunity to go to their neighborhood school. By the way, it's far from clear whether those mobs represented a majority. Clearly, there were some white people who either wanted integration or didn't mind it, but they were not as organized or as vociferous as the segregationists. As a result, a thuggish mob led by a crook was allowed to prevail. And because of that, Delaware and the United States lost an opportunity to start solving the problem of inequality that was built into the origins of the country. What else happened after that fall of 1954? The 11 students from Milford all went to Jason High School and led full lives, though some were deeply scarred by their experience. Orlando Camp joined the Army and, well, I'll let him tell you. It was a difficult period to go through. And it's interesting that I wrote this book because I felt very strongly that those 11 students never really had a voice. Many of the, the, the 11, Milford 11, felt that that 28 days, and by the way, it was only 28 days that we were in the white school. Mm-hmm. Those 28 days defined who they were. Do you feel that way? I don't. Okay. I went on from, uh, from those, in fact, I graduated from, I went on to... Uh, outstanding soldier of 1963. Well, <laughs> outstanding soldier. I went on to become a vice president of a company in, in New Jersey. I went on to get a college education, and I felt that those 28 days was not going to determine who I was in life. Right. But some of the other students, uh, it did, it did, it was very difficult for them to talk about it. In fact, my wife tells the story, I didn't, I got married and I never talked to her about it at all. And so I... I had put it out of my mind, put it out of my, my, my vocabulary for a long period of time. What brought it back was the 50th anniversary versus Brown versus Boyd. What else happened? Quite a few Milford High School teachers resigned at the end of that year because they disagreed with what had happened. In 1967, after Delaware's schools were desegregated, Jason closed as a high school and reopened as Delaware Technical Community College, which still serves Lower Delaware. In 1997, Bryant Bowles died after doing one stretch in a Texas prison for killing his brother-in-law and another for violating parole. In 2004, after Ed Key had unearthed the story, he helped arrange the installation of a plaque on Milford High School commemorating the Milford 11. Materials he had found were used by both Orlando Camp 
and Brett Gadsden in writing their books. Key also served on the Milford School Board for some time. Also in 2004, Orlando Camp and Ed Key together held a unity picnic at Key's farm outside of Milford. Hundreds of people attended. Some of them were the Milford 11 students, and some were white students from that time. The son of Arthur Young even attended. Speaking of Arthur Young, after serving as Attorney General, he went on to establish one of the most prestigious law firms in Delaware. He died in 1982. Colin Seitz was appointed as a federal judge by President Lyndon Johnson. Seitz and Louis Redding died within days of each other in 1998. After Redding died, the University of Delaware named a professorship after him. Today, Redding is lauded as a great figure in Delaware history. Gadsden finds it ironic that his memory was being enshrined in Delaware just as its schools began resegregating. Like Lewis Redding is now revered as this kind of social justice leader in the state. And, and it just seemed ironic, right? That for most of his career, Lewis Redding was fighting an uphill battle, right? To, um, for social justice, for racial equality, for all of the kind of virulent backlash to the work, to the, to the civil rights work that, that, that Lewis Redding did, he was actually just making a very modest kind of request of state officials, of white citizens, which was to recognize the basic constitutional rights of African Americans. No more, no less. He was not asking for a kind of radical transformation of the system. He wasn't asking that blacks enjoy some great new kind of these new privileges and advantages in society. All he was saying is, look, there's this constitution, there is this thing called the 14th Amendment, and then there is this kind of long public policy record of inequality and inequity that has kind of systematically diminished the standing, the political, the economic, and the social standing of African-American citizens. That's wrong, and there's a simple remedy for it, desegregate the schools. In the interview we have of Lewis Redding from 1971, he didn't speak directly of his legal work, but he did say this. I was keenly aware that many Negroes themselves wanted to see a closer conformity in this country between the ideals expressed in our historic documents, such as the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, and uh, practice with respect to Negroes, I say, I knew that Negroes wanted to see a coalescing of ideal with practice. That concludes our special edition of Extraordinary Districts. I hope you heard what I heard, a story of the persistence and courage African-American children have needed to pursue an education and a story of the willingness of some white Americans to threaten and commit violence in order to deny African-American children that education. That's an old story woven deeply into American history. But what shone through to me in the story of the Milford 11 was the willingness of seemingly well-meaning white people to acquiesce to violence rather than demand that the rule of law be upheld. This story also serves as a reminder that there is only so much individual teachers, principals, superintendents, parents, and students can do to make schools better. 
all operate within a larger social and political context that needs leadership from the entire community, including school boards, judges, attorneys, governors, even presidents. I want to express my thanks to the University of Delaware Library, the Delaware State Archives, the Columbia University Oral History Project, and the Kansas Historical Society. It is thanks to them that I was able to bring you the voices of Lewis Redding, Arthur Young, Bryant Bowles, Thurgood Marshall, and Colin Seitz. And I want to thank Orlando Camp. He declined to be interviewed for this podcast, but spoke to me several times. And thank you to those from In the Upper Room who did interview him and posted the interview on YouTube. And C-SPAN for archiving the memorial service to Colin Seitz. And of course, thank you to Ed Key for all the original work unearthing this story, including rescuing the radio recordings from 1954. And Brett Gadsden for his work in helping us understand the larger historical context of Delaware's role. For links to the resources we used, go to www.edtrust.org slash extraordinarydistricts. Finally, I want to thank the Overdeck Family Foundation, which is funding the second season of Extraordinary Districts, including this special edition. The second season will feature an episode on Seaford in Lower Delaware. It's a district that is not only confronting issues of race and equity, it's also one of the fastest improving districts in Delaware. Seaford has an interesting story to tell. In the meantime, listen to the first season of Extraordinary Districts, which can be found wherever you get your podcasts. If you think this is a valuable podcast, please leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen and consider contributing to the Education Trust so that we can continue finding and learning from districts that have something important to share. You can find a donate button on www.edtrust.org slash extraordinarydistricts. Please subscribe to Extraordinary Districts so that you get notified of new episodes. Extraordinary Districts is recorded at Tonal Park by Mike Patillo, who is both sound engineer and music composer. This is Karen Chenoweth from the Education Trust. See you next time.